House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, this time we have a, uh, a great guest. Uh, uh, I, I love that we were able to have her on the show. It's uh, Joan Mellon, who's written plenty of books, a PhD, a professor. Um, thank you, Joan, for taking the time to talk to me today. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward. So, um, I, I was looking. You, you've done a lot of books and you've done a lot of research um, surrounding JFK. What what led you to do so much work centered around JFK? Well, I I, I, I decided to write a biography. I had been a biographer of other subjects, literary subjects, for example. Bob Knight, a, ba a basketball coach. And I decided to write a biography of Tim Garrison, whom I had met. And so uh, the only way I could think of to get through the morass of controversy, because there was so much attack, so many attacks on Jim Garrison, was to find out everything I could. And the National Archives, after the JFK film, uh, uh, had the FBI, CIA, and other agencies released their records on the Kennedy assassination after the film of JFK. And uh, so I, was, I had to go to look at everything. What was actually there? What, was, what were the records of the garrison office like? What kind of interviews did they do and with whom? It was great fun. I spent a lot of time in Louisiana. <laughs> I met Jim Garrison's classmates, everything. Oh, and one classmate of Jim Garrison's, was named John Rarick, who was a very conservative, may I say, rest in peace, racist. And, uh, however, he liked Jim Garrison, and he also liked the law. He was a lawyer and a judge and a congressman. And he, and he was adamant. Uh, Jim Garrison, in, in, as district attorney, had, had, had a lot of rape cases, but the women didn't want to come forward and testify. So one solution that they had was to put the perpetrator in this place, the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson, which was a mental hospital. And this was in John Rarick's constituency. He was up there in East Louisiana Parish. And he found out that some of the people who had been thrown in the um, uh, insane asylum had not been given uh, a fair trial, hadn't given any trial. And so John Rarick issued his... And he issued writs of habeas corpus and said, you let him out or you try, you know, or you try him. So eventually they did. And one of the prisoners is a particular rapist, uh, which I discuss in one of my books. About, I, I wrote several books about Garrison. Yeah. One was a biography of his early life, his political life, his life in the army, his childhood. And the other was A Farewell to Justice, which is the one about the Kennedy assassination. So I enjoyed doing the first one because to see all these cases and that he um, uh, followed as district attorney of Orleans Parish. And this story of Leonard Caesar, this very notorious figure who did a lot of rapes in the French Quarter, is very interesting because he f finally he did go on trial and he, uh, he got, I think his sentence was time served in the insane asylum. So he got out and he drove and he managed to get himself to John Rarick's home in East Feliciana Parish, and he had with him a metal, a, a metal, a, a, car, a sort of a hammering, I guess, of a fish. John Rarick is on the roof 
very popular figure. He's on the roof fixing his roof. And a Leonard Caesar comes along and just hands it up to him, this plaque of a fish, which represents Christian charity. He was grateful to John for having brought his case into the, into the light, really, and, and had let, let, let nature take its course. And I thought that was it was a symbol of Christian love and charity. And I, these are some of the uh, things things that happen in sort of very Louisiana, isn't it? And then when I started to, if you see it in Faustian Bargains, there's a long section on the attack on the USS Liberty during the Six-Day War. And I decided that I would, after that, my next book, which is, I'm doing now, about the Liberty, uh, I would include uh, John Rarick, because he was one of the few congressmen in the United States who demanded that the truth be told, that the case be open, and that people and learn what actually happened on that day in June when the Israel fired on the USS Liberty, an unarmed ship. It was a surveillance ship. It was not a battleship or warship of any kind. And they were, and and then and people just died. They died by flies. And then and I try to find out well what happened. Why did they do this? Did they do this on their own? Did they have it? They have a collaborator. Well, sure they did. Nobody would do that. These are unarmed American sailors. They had no interest in the Middle East. They were just sent out there to tap the cables for the Soviet messages. Not that they were of any interest. Finally, when the National Security Agency interviewed these people, and they said, well, did you learn any valuable intelligence from being out there in the East Mediterranean in a war zone? And every one of them had to say, and they were all military people. These are not radicals. They had to say they had gotten nothing out of it. They were sent up there to be attacked, like sitting ducks. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting to me. So, yeah. and, and John Rarick was a maverick. And so he got up in, in Congress and demanded that, that an investigation be uh, carried out by the American government. Well, and to this day it hasn't happened. And this coming June is the 50th anniversary of the attack on the USS Liberty. So I'm sort of following, one book follows another. Uh, I don't think I did justice to the Liberty story. I told what happened in Faustian Bargains, but I didn't explain where the, where the idea of this came from. It didn't just pop out of the sky. And uh, that's what I've been doing. It is not, it's very difficult, the most difficult research I've ever done. Would you find that uh, it's hard to find people that were around then or that are able to talk? Well, I found, you know, there were still survivors who had been, who were on the ship, but they didn't know what happened. They knew they were shot, but they didn't really know what, 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 how that came about. And I found some people, like one of the most valuable people that I found was a person who was the head of State Department Intelligence and Research, Thomas Lowe Hughes. And he's in the Chevy Chase and very willing to talk. And, and, but not quite. I mean, he didn't show me his report. He had to write a report on the Liberty incident. He didn't show that to me. But he told me, I knew more than he did, of course, by this time. Yeah. But, um, not everybody would support such a thing. And I also found out that the chief of naval operations at the time, who was Admiral McDonald, well, he's not alive anymore, but I found hidden papers and notations where he says, well, I, what was the ship doing? Who sent the ship up there? So then my task was to find out who it was, and I did. Miracle. But if you do this research enough, you just sit there and sit there and look at the papers and look at what, what is released. 
and what has been released by the government, National Security Agency, CIA, whomever, has been redacted. But they don't redact everything. Sometimes they miss a sentence, and that's a key sentence. And you, you find out a lot like that. It's, it's and you just go Eureka. But you're all alone upstairs, and you know, at your desk, and you know, you have no one to share it with. Yeah. But it, you, do you find that it's um, when you do something like that and find something like that? Um, are you worried about reaction? Uh, and I say that so much more because um, I find with the JFK and the assassinations and all the '60s, whenever we talk about events. There's a lot of passion and there's a lot of, um, you know, nastiness that goes on. I know, but you know, I, I've learned. See, I got a lot. I was the recipient a lot of a lot of the hatred of Garrison, because here I am writing a book supporting Garrison and telling what his story was, and I got hell. The New York Times wouldn't touch it. And so, <laughs> and my, my, I hired a publicist, and she, innocent. She goes to the office of the. Um, editor of the New York Times book review. His name was Sam Tannenhouse. She, she schleps my manuscript in there. Well, she's thinking she'll get a review. She's trying hard. She's, <laughs> and they, they wouldn't look at it. They wouldn't touch it. And I know that. And, and not only that, but they, wouldn't, they have not reviewed any of the books I've written since. Like I got a black mark, like a blacklist. And that goes for NPR. NPR is the twin of the New York Times. These go in, in bed together. So I can't get on NPR, and I was so puzzled, because I was in Baltimore, it's not too far from here, and I, there was a good NPR show, I can't remember the name of the host, maybe he's still there, it just wouldn't have me on no matter what, I could lay down and die, he wouldn't do it. Why, why, why? <laughs> it's because, you know, there's a, there's a, I think it's about Garrison, really, it wasn't me, it wasn't anything about me, because I was, it was clear that I was taking Garrison seriously. Right. Well, what's the? Can you talk to that? Like, what what is the issue with Garrison in the way? I mean, I'm looking back at it, and I watch like the John Barber films, and I watch, I, I listen to all this. I have plenty of interviews. What is the big? I mean, Garrison. I think, however you take it, whether you believed what he brought out in the trial against Clay Shaw or not, why is there such a negative impression of him? Well. You know that the CIA has media assets. They have people that work for them that express their point of view. And one of them was about Garrison, Richard Helms, who was, I think, at the 1967, he was the director of Central Intelligence. He come up with the view that Garrison is being manipulated by the KGB and that that's why he's accusing Shaw and all of this. Now, it just so happened, after the book was published, I find a document from the CIA review group which says, of course, uh, Clay Shaw was a highly paid asset of CIA. And, and I have the document, and I published it in my book about Haiti, but you, you can find it. It's not hard to find. Whoa! Uh, so they admitted it as they're looking through. See, they're, they're reviewing the papers that they sent to the House Select Committee. And this is one of the things, they say that. Well, you see, Garrison, when he started to look at the summer of 1963 in New Orleans, and he sees Lee Harvey Oswald roaming around there, and Garrison comes out with the, and Garrison, as I said before, always was wanting to come forward with what he finds. So he found, and I look at Lee Harvey Oswald, 
in uh, the summer of 1963 in New Orleans, and I see everyone he's associated not only was he never alone, because you know he had the thing, alone assassin, not only was he never alone, but everyone he was with was with CIA. This, well, they, they went ballistic, and ever since then, they, they, Garrison is, is on their list, and, and years have gone by, you think they'd get over it. The footprints of CIA are everywhere in the New Orleans story. That's why when I came to Texas and I was working on Mac Wallace and Lyndon Johnson, I knew some of the people around the Texas story, whom you mentioned just a minute ago, think that, that the Kennedy assassination was a Texas story, Texas justice. But I know, because I, I know that the CIA is roaming around there in, the whole, in that summer, that uh, there's a, a big CIA footprint in the Kennedy assassination. So it couldn't have been just Texas, or just Texans and Texas justice. That's not, that's just a, a myth. That's a false sponsor. Right. So they all yell at me and threaten me and uh, all this, and uh, I just don't care what they say. I have to tell you something, Al. Yeah. You know, these days, it's a very trying time. The, the society is being destabilized in a rapid way. I'm teaching at a university. I had a student get up in class on Valentine's Day and issue a tirade of uh, venomous obscenities against women, against gays, against um, every which per and, and, and against people who criticize Trump. And uh, I, we were frightened. The girls in the class, you know, the young women, they, one of them wrote me an email and said she's afraid to cut a class again. This is upsetting. I, want, I said, I'll protect you, don't worry. But I can't protect her because you know that the university has no mechanism to punish a student that does this. It's anything goes these days. So the whole uh, the, the kind of the social order is falling apart. And, and in keeping with that, we have this, the, the, the undermining of the research into the Kennedy assassination. And that means that any people will make up lies. They'll uh, say someone else is a liar. They have uh, and things about how it's Texas justice, for example, and LBJ did it. No proof of that whatsoever. Not one single iota of credible evidence. And they and they say that. And I, I'm not. Like, we were afraid. We, can, we can't be afraid of them. Right. Right. Jim Garrison wasn't afraid. He went out and did. You know, they got him finally to undermining him through harassment, through causing him to lose the office of district attorney so they couldn't conduct his investigations any longer. But he did, and then he became ill and he died fairly young, but uh, he never stopped. Till the day he died, he was still interested in what, he said, the truth will come out. Even when the House Select Committee was corrupted, you know, the Church Committee, all these committees, he said the truth will come out. <laughs> and um, I think... A lot of the truth has come out. It's just that there are forces that refuse to acknowledge that the truth has come out. And do you think that's related to today's political climate? Absolutely. Because if we were to really pursue the truth about the Kennedy assassination, one of the, thing, one of the things that we would find is that lying and mendacity and, uh, and um, in order to keep the, take power, really, you have to undermine the forces of reason, I may use the phrase like that, and, uh, and, and the research, and so confuse the issue, so blow smoke on the Kennedy assassination that people will just throw up their hands and say, 
Well, who knows? We'll never know. You've heard that, I'm sure. We'll never oh, know. Yeah. And uh, we, we do know. We will know, and we do know. And uh, because in order to pursue what they're pursuing, which is the endless war, I'm going to go into the war economy and all of that, they need to confuse the population so that they would actually vote against their interests. That's not the first time that people have voted against their interests. But this time they really did, didn't they? Oh, yeah. They voted, but they had no, there was no one who represented their interests. Right. Either candidate. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a mess. I did not vote. I have to admit it to the world. I didn't vote. I couldn't. <laughs> I could not vote for her. Yeah. I think that was a, a, some of the problem. But I think that in the, in the current climate of, of politics, a lot of that is, <clears throat> excuse me, back to that staging of uh, creating someone, um, sort of what they did to uh, Garrison. <clears throat> they stage a lot of um, stuff that's not true. Absolutely. You know. And, it, and who's going to know? And who's going to, and, uh, if, you know, so anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm coming out with this new book about the liberty, and I'm going to say what I think happened and who decided and where the idea came from. It's not that hard to find if you just open your mind and say, well, what could it possibly be? And there was a paper called Operation Northwoods that was written by Lyman Lemnitzer during the Kennedy years, in which it was a list of dirty tricks that the United States would do in order to uh, get rid of Castro. That was their favorite pastime. And one of them was blowing up a ship, attacking a ship. Now, went to McNamara. Well, McNamara was Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, too. And it went there, and then, and then Kennedy vetoed it. He didn't want any part of it. But then it seems that that's, you know, the idea hovered around was in the air. And, and, and they said, well, you know, what the CIA has done dirty tricks, of course, since day one. And the CIA had a lot of power, especially in the Kennedy years. And uh, they were very, they didn't like Kennedy one bit. And Kennedy didn't like them. You can see that in Richard Reeves' biography. It's called President Kennedy. It's the best biography of Kennedy. And he just has Kennedy say, I'll get them. And so if it's a way, I'll get those CIA bastards, if I could say that on the radio. If it's, a, it's a quote from President Kennedy. If it's the last thing I do. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, but, but they, would do, they were making policy. And in fact, that the CIA was making policy. It's part of an art, a seven-part seven article, which I think, that was printed in the New York Times on the front page during the Kennedy years. It was sort of an expose of CIA. Right. So, yeah. I was, was going to say, but does this play into now? Because uh, nowadays when people are talking about the Russian hacking and, and all these different things, there's a real distrust for CIA. Well, CIA started the Cold War. Now that I don't know what they're saying now, no, yes, no, yes, but yeah. the fact is yeah. that if you look at the Alan Dulles years and the, and the people they employed to, to you know rev up for, uh, anger against the Soviet Union, these were the people that in the Galen Group that, that, that this is the uh, Secret Service of the, of Hitler, and they came to the United States and uh, Alan Dulles embraced them and he sent them off there to Russia to be spies for the United States. Whoa. And they, they were very much uh, in favor of the Cold War against Russia. Yeah. And uh, I don't see any credibility now myself. I don't, I don't really know enough. But yeah. um, uh, 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 what they did, well, why would they care for one candidate or other? Yeah. 
Right. Same way I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's yeah. just it. You know, and, and you know, when you look at it, whether it's true or not, either people or have no faith in their government and CIA, or they don't care. <laughs> I think they don't have faith in CIA, and I think Garrison finally, I think I have to say, beat them. Yeah. Because he created a distrust, and that's the most he could do. But that's a big thing to do, because when we grew up, I don't know, maybe I'm older than you, kind of, but <laughs> uh, we trusted the government. We liked the government. We were proud of being Americans. We, we who ever heard of attacking a dollar? <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, when you look at it, you look and see what's what. It's uh, pretty bad, and uh, so all my books are, are connected to these issues. You, you know something, um, Jim Garrison said. It really holds where he said, I thought I was still living in the country that I was born in. And I that, love that. I love that. Yeah, and that means a lot to me because I, I almost feel disillusioned from what I grew up in in the 60s and the, in the 50s and 60s. You think it was such a, everything was good, like you said, love America, good, good government, good people were the good people of the world and all this stuff, freedom. But now as years go by and I do so many interviews and read so many books, I feel very disillusioned. Well, Garrison did too. He was—he grew up. He went to the, or uh, he joined the FBI briefly, and then they had a, he had a choice to re-enlist in the FBI or go to war. He went. No, no, I think that was the second time. I take that back. He—he he went into the army. He enlisted in the army in the Army Air Corps. So he was flying these little planes into the uh, Germany and and risking his life for nothing of it. And I uh, was present to uh, witness um, the uh, liberation of Dachau, was there, took pictures. And I put those pictures in the book that I did, get Jim Garrison, His Life and Times. It was about his, about his early life, his military life. That, that really governed his whole life after that. And he, but he had been a, a patriotic American in every sense. What did you and think then, of him when you met him? What did you think? He was, he was uh, in, into himself. You know, yeah. he was talking and talking. He didn't care what you said. He didn't care. He just talked, and but that's all right. He wanted to talk about what he was doing, which is the Kennedy uh, investigation. Now, at that time, uh, he had just lost the Shaw case. I saw him in May of 19, um, let's call it, what was it, 1969. The case was in January. He had been, Shaw was acquitted. And Jim Garrison didn't care. He said, uh, Clarence Darrow lost the Scopes case. Scopes? Scopes. And, you know, the case about Darwin. Right. And, uh, and look, you know, implying that, you know, his view prevailed. And the same, he felt that his view would, all, would prevail. But he, uh, he was passionate, obsessed. He didn't care about anything else. He had no political ambition whatsoever. People would try to accuse him of that. It wasn't true. And, in fact, I was sick. And he came up to the room, my husband was there, and we were talking, and some people from who worked in the hotel uh, were fixing the blinds, it was, the sun was shining in my eyes, and uh, they said, hello, Mr. Garrison. And I thought, well, how is, how is that? All these black people are saying hello to Mr. Garrison. I had no idea he was district attorney. He never <laughs> referred to it even. What did I know? And uh, yet, he, all I knew was this is a person that's investigating the Kennedy assassination. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. And he went into this, he liked to stay, go to this restaurant 
which was, um, I, God, I can't remember, it's in my books, but anyway, it's in the middle of the room, it's a very fancy place, and, uh, and talk, with a cigar and talk. And, and I, other times that I saw him, the last time I saw him, he came to, we had dinner, and he came to my hotel, in the, uh, it was the Windsor Court Hotel, which is a wonderful hotel, it was before Katrina, and, uh, he would sit, after dinner, he'd be sitting in the lobby, talking again at a table, and just, he, he it was, nobody even noticed. <laughs> nobody, uh, it was just a, a common sight. Yeah. You know, and he was a judge then. He was no longer district attorney. Right. But he was a very interesting, this is an interesting person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, I, at that time, he had been framed for taking bribes from pinball interests, gambling interests. It was illegal to pay off on pinball games. You could play pinball, but not pay off in a bar with a bartender with money, change hands. And he was accused of taking bribes from the proprietors who owned the pinball machines. And it was a big deal. It was a federal case. And eventually he had, uh, F. F. Lee Bailey said, I'm going to, I'll represent you for free. But it turned out finally that Garrison defended himself. And he talked about his life, and he talked about what, 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 what meant, ideas that meant things to him, and he got acquitted. <laughs> and, but, but it had taken so much out of him, right. and it was, it, it, he was so exhausted, and he had to run for re-election right, right then. And uh, he lost to uh, Harry Connick, which is the father of uh, Harry Connick Jr., the musician. Right, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, it was a big blow. He lost by 2,200 votes. Not very much. No. And uh, he didn't campaign. He refused to campaign. And all his young assistants would go out and try to campaign for him. But people wanted to see Mr. Garrison. And he was just, he'd had it. Yeah. He hated being a politician anyway. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I could see. I, I don't blame him. The, uh, now, the, in Faustian Bargains, the uh, book, you talk about Lyndon Johnson and Mac Wallace. Um, so what, what is it that you find that's different than what most people think about the relationship? Well, most people think Mac Wallace was, was a, 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 a killer right. who killed people for Johnson and for Billy Saul Estes and, uh, and that whole crowd. And I looked at it, and I decided I don't, I don't, I don't know anything. So I'm going to look, and I found out that he was a, he was a liberal young fellow who was who was an outstanding student at the University of Texas. And Johnson liked to pick out people like that and come to his office to work for him. And Mac Wallace was only one of many. Another one is Bill Moyers, whom we know. Oh yeah. Many. John Connolly was one. Judge Lloyd Hand. There was a whole bunch of bunch of those guys. And they were all usually at the University of Texas. And so uh, this myth then was created by Billy Salvesi, who was a petty criminal. And he was finally caught at various scams. I won't go into all these scams, but with um, cotton allotments and fertilizer. He's trying to corner the market and fertilizer and whatnot. And he was uh, uh, paying off Johnson. Johnson got who? How do you get cotton allotments? You and I cannot call up and say, "We have a we have a storage place. Send us some cotton, <laughs> or send you know send yeah. us some grain. Grain they were storing grain also, and he had his his, his uh, 
storage facilities were full. And he got a huge amount of money for this. Wow. So um, anyway, when Billy Solestes was caught, he thought Johnson would protect him. And Johnson uh, distanced himself fast. Yeah. And so Billy Solestes went to jail. And when Billy Solestes got out after a second term in jail, it was 1984 or five, and he decided they went to a, a grand jury and he accused Lyndon Johnson of order, order, organizing the murder of a uh, person who worked for the agriculture department called Henry Marshall. And that Mac Wallace was hired by Johnson to kill Henry Marshall. Henry Marshall was murdered. And so were several people who had worked for Billy Solestes. No, Marshall did not work for Billy Solestes. He was the one who was going to finger him. He was going to uh, report him uh, to the Department of Agriculture. Whoa. So, uh, uh, and then Mac Wallace was then accused of many other mur murders. He was even accused of, by Billy Solestes of killing Johnson's sister. Right, yeah. And uh, others, and, and Kennedy. Then to top it all off, it would be Kennedy. And they had, and, and it turned out one of these zealous researchers, who was sincere, his name was uh, Jay Harrison, got a B in his bonnet that Mac Wallace, that the, there's one un, un, unidentified fingerprint that was found at the Texas School Book Depository. And it was in the hands of the Warren Commission. They got it from the FBI on the day of the Kennedy assassination. A little, a left little finger. And Jay got the idea that Mac Wallace. And so uh, he hired a, a forensic examiner to look at the fingerprint and look at Mac Wallace. And Mac Wallace, Mac Wallace I should add, killed somebody in the, in the 1950s. Sort of a, a crime of passion. A golf professional named Kinzer. And uh, the, the finger, his fingerprints were taken at the, by the Austin Police Department. And he had also, Mac Wallace in 1939, had joined the Marines. And uh, they take your fingerprint. The Navy takes your fingerprints when you join. So they, there was, but, but Jay didn't have the Navy. I finally got the Navy prints. You can only get those after X number of years pass, and they hadn't passed for him, but they did for me. And the Austin prints were a little bit blurred because they didn't clean off the machine from the previous uh, perpetrator. So it was a little blurry. And he, and the examiner, as an elderly man at the time, was convinced it was Mac Wallace. So when I started this story, I, I figured, well, what I'm going to do is start this investigation all over again. And I found it on the Internet a forensic examiner, fingerprint examiner, who turned out, I didn't know this at the time, was an officer in the certifying organization. It's an organization that certifies fingerprint examiners. And he came to my house, believe it or not. He also had worked for the New Jersey police and as a crime scene investigator. And he came here and he said, I, so I gave him the Navy prints and I gave him the Austin prints. And then I, he said, I had the prints from Jay that were from, um, the Austin prints were from Jay. And then there was, I got the, the print from the Warren Commission from the National Archives. And the FBI does fantastic prints, very clear. And I called it, and they said the National Archives sent me a, a, a photograph, which was pristine. So now my examiner looks at these, he looks at the Navy, looks at the Austin, and he looks at the one from the National Archives, and he says, the one from the Navy and the one from Austin are the same person, but this one from the Texas Depository 
It's not not that person. <laughs> so can you imagine everybody went ballistic because all these cases and all these books that you've mentioned certain authors so yeah. they their their thesis that Johnson was involved in the Kennedy assassination and was using Mac Wallace came from that fingerprint that uh, identification. Now the fingerprint is no good. So what happens to all those books? Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't out for those people. I, you know, I, yeah. But they're very sloppy, see. And that was what we were talking about earlier, about these investigations and how they're corrupted and sloppy and uh, make up things and so forth. Well, it's not my fault. Uh, I, and by the way, I have to say, when I found that, I just was... See, I had been talking to Mac Wallace's children, grown up now, of course, his son and daughter, especially his son, and I was so, when I was able to tell his son that that wasn't his father's print in the school book depository, it made me happy. He, you know, because he always said that his father had been home on the day of the Kennedy assassination, and he was very the kid was very upset because he thought it was a black mark against Texas. They were from Texas, and so he was, and his father tried to console him. So his father, he's you know whatever his father's nobody's a saint. His father had committed that murder, I, I mentioned, but he did not kill President Kennedy in any way, or be, was not involved in any way in that. And uh, he, he was happy. So then I called my publisher. Very funny. And I'm, I'm excited because I think I've discovered something. It's bit, when you, doesn't matter what you discover, it will, where the truth lies, that's where you go. But I was so happy the publisher was down. He was not happy at all. Because he thought a much more interesting book is you have a murderer of yeah. President Kennedy. Yeah. And I couldn't say I did. No. Well, what did you learn But Did you think that, uh, uh, because he was known as such a, you know, like the hitman for, for Johnson, do you think there's any truth to that at all? No. No. Now, he did do some jobs for Johnson. He did some, uh, which I found in the, this is what I did. I found the archives of Life magazine. Life magazine, and then around the time of uh, maybe 1964, uh, 65, that be, be, no, maybe before Johnson became president, so it must have been 62, 63. They wanted to do an expose of Johnson and all his corruption. So they had one of their writers was called Holland McCombs. Ironically, later, uh, uh, who tried to disturb the Garrison investigation because he was connected to CIA, believe it or not. But at this time, he was with Life magazine, and he was going, and went in the hinterland of Texas to try to find out the truth about Johnson. And one of the things he found was that Johnson had a young man named Mac Wallace who would do some jobs for him. Like Johnson, if, you, if he give you a government loan, and then you have to give him a kickback from that, or maybe you have to give him part of your business, and so Mac Wallace went to the, into the hinterland of Texas to collect for Johnson. He did that. And that doesn't mean he killed anybody or President Kennedy or anything else. He just did jobs for Johnson. He had been out of work. Uh, he had worked as a teacher, as a professor at various universities. And uh, he lost his jobs, all the jobs. And so he went back to Mac, this is Mac Wallace. He went back to Texas. And he ran into Cliff Carter, who was Johnson's right-hand man in Texas. And Cliff Carter brought him to Washington to work for the Department of Agriculture and for Johnson. And among the other jobs that Mac Wallace did was sort of to look after his sister, Josepha, because she was very wild and she was promiscuous. And 
Johnson, and not only Mac Wallace, but also Horace Busby, who was the editor of the Daily Texan at the time that Mac Wallace was a student at the University of Texas. Somebody wrote a little thing about my book, and they said, oh, there's too much about Mac Wallace at, at the University of Texas. My favorite part of the book. One of my favorite. Because here we see this young man who's just trying to make his way. He became president of the student body, which is a big thing in Texas. And he, um, he threw himself into the movement to restore the, the, the Board of Trustees and the governor of Texas, who was Coke Stevenson at the time, fired the president of the University of Texas, whose name was Homer Rainey, and who was a liberal and a uh, believer in the views of John Dewey and all this. And Mac Wallace had organized the student body to uh, protest this and to demand that Homer Rainey be reinstated. And the trustees were all picked by Coke Stevenson, all reactionaries, and they never, he never got reinstated. But that was, that was what Mac Wallace, he gave a speech at a football game at uh, Southern Methodist University, which is in Dallas. And uh, isn't it in Dallas? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, now, anyway, maybe they were playing at Austin. They were playing at Texas Stadium. They were not playing in, uh, so they were playing in Austin. And um, during halftime, Mac Wallace gets up, and the whole crowd is there, you know, the place is full, and he stands and gives a speech for Homer, Homer Rainey, and everybody was in tears, Homer Rainey was in tears, and it was, I think, the finest moment of his life, and I wanted to convey that. He went, he, that was a high point of his life, and then after that, hard times came, he lost the woman that he loved, because he was from a poor family, that's the truth, she admitted it to me at the age of 90, <laughs> and, uh, he loved her till the day he died. I know that. Because he talked to his wife, the wife he had now in California when he went there. And uh, she said uh, he kept talking about this na the woman named Carol Ann. A woman named Carol Ann. Now, this woman that he loved in the University of Texas was called Nora Ann Carroll. Pretty close. Yeah. And, he, and he always talked about her. He, that was, he lost what he, what he, the thing he meant, that meant the most to him. So that's a, it's an I think it's an interesting story, and I wanted it to stand for Johnson's relationships with all similar young men whom he corrupted, yeah. whom he used, and uh, there are many, many books about that, like, um, what was his name, Eric, one of the uh, historians who went to work for Johnson said he took those young men and he destroyed their lives. Because he used them, and he made them do whatever he wanted, whatever jobs he had, whatever he was doing. And he had some dillies. Yes. And one of them even involved a treasure trove in, uh, in New Mexico. Ooh. And <laughs> it was a found old Mexican gold and Spanish gold and whatnot. And he got involved with that and started carting away the gold bars that were there. And I found the people that did the research on that on the ground, and they had affidavits, everything. So this is a corrupt figure beyond what anybody knows. And then, of course, there's Johnson's role in the USS Liberty. Because, and I, if you read that part, if you had a chance, when, um, okay, the ship is being fired on, they managed, because the Navy was very smart, very competent. The Navy are fabulous. So they managed to get a, a hooked up, you know, the, the, uh, the, in the, in the uh, attack, all the uh, antenna were destroyed. 
But one sailor managed to get one um, cable going, and they, they sent out an SOS to the Sixth Fleet. And um, the, 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 the people in the, and the ships in the Sixth Fleet could hear the, the, the shots, the, the rockets firing against them. So now, um, these, some of these admirals, are bit like they're from Joseph Conrad novels, they're extremely uh, sincere, sympathetic. So one of the one of these admirals on uh, the USS Saratoga, he just immediately hears that SOS and he, he launches. I don't know how many it was, four or five planes to go to the site of the Liberty. Now the other ship, which was the USS America, did not launch, and that's a story that that, tell, that sort of exposes an admiral that's involved in the in this in this crime, the conspiracy. So of course, it's a conspiracy. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, they have to tell McNamara that they've done it. So they that they rather, rather um, that they launched the planes. They did. So McNamara calls back on an open line, no less, and says, "Call back those planes." So the admiral thinks he's maybe McNamara mistook a thought that maybe nuclear plane, nuclear arms were sent, and he wanted so he relaunched planes that could not possibly have a nuclear component. And uh, then uh, McNamara calls back. I said, "Call back those planes," and and the, and the admiral's angry now, and he says, "I don't have to listen to this." You know, and, 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 and McNamara is not is not an elected. He's just he's appointed by Johnson. He wasn't elected even. So then, Jack Johnson, whose voice is distinctive, you can't miss it, grabs the telephone and says, "Call back those planes. I won't embarrass my allies. Your allies, those ships were black. Those planes were blacked over. You couldn't tell whose plane they were." Only ad- all identifying marks were were uh, covered, which is a violation of international law, by the way. And uh, call back those planes, and that was it. They called back the and then again, when once John Johnson's the commander in chief, so once he says call back the planes, all the admirals remember they have to call back the planes, and they did. And then they, the people on the ship were left alone without any help, without any aid, one doctor for 300 people uh, for 17 hours until the next morning when the USS America and the Saratoga and other ships went to the site. That's murder. That's Johnson is a war criminal. Nobody ever talks about this. I don't know. This part, this story is not, this part of Johnson's life has not appeared in the Robert Carroll biographies yet. He hasn't covered 1967 yet. Let's see what he does. Yeah. Well, so so your overall impression, it's still not necessarily real rosy about Lyndon Johnson. Ha uh-huh. ha. Very funny, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I don't even, I'm not even interested in Lyndon Johnson, frankly. Yeah. Who's, you yeah. know, I, in the greater scheme of things, we've got real trouble. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's no one that we want to be proud of. I'm not giving him credit for any of the great society because once the Vietnam War, you know, went in full flight, you know, then they had to just cut back the money on all those programs. So goodbye to the great society, as Martin Luther King noted. King had no use for Johnson. Finally, when Johnson asked Dr. King to come and attend when the Voting Rights Act was signed, he refused to go. Yeah. Which is which is a moment of integrity, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And besides, the civil rights 
that we got were the, the work of people that were in the civil rights movement. Dr. King, Malcolm X, Robert Moses, all those people that in SNCC uh, that, 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 you know, risked their lives for, for voting rights. Why do they promote Johnson as such a civil rights leader? Well, they want to, pro- you know, it's, it's, a, it's a question of promoting the, the figure of power, the figure that's part of the system. The figure that, 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 they, that they could then cover, they could cover themselves. I don't think he gave a, and I have a lot in my book, I don't think he gave a damn about civil rights. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they promote, and, and I, you know, I think the biographers, and there are several, really are giving him cover. They're providing cover for somebody, because, you see, you don't want to undermine the faith of the population in the government. Well, see what has that has resulted in? Exactly. You know, yeah. the, the current uh, situation. But isn't it better to admit the truth of what's going on, when it's happening? Such, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. You can't deal with it if you don't talk about it. And uh, then we can put it in its proper place. Johnson is disgusting. He's maybe the worst person ever in the office to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might change. Uh, <laughs> real but uh, uh, terrible. Yeah. And the Vietnam, unspeakable. He made a deal, and it's well known. He admitted it when he was, uh, you know, when President Kennedy was killed. Uh, Johnson told the um, Joint Chiefs, which is an office, not a person, uh, "Give me my, let me get elected," because he had Johnson had to get elected in 19, right away in, in 1964. Give me, let me get elected, and I'll give you your war. So he knew that he was put in there. Give the war, make the war, cause create the war, which he did. And the whole country, I mean, that maybe people didn't know what was what, but they sure knew they placed the blame on him. I remember, if I may say so, that you he couldn't walk out in the street, he couldn't go to a building, a public building, without demonstrators being outside with signs. Wow. He would sneak. I want. I was once demonstrating in Des Moines. That's nice. And there he is, and, and his wife, and the two beautiful daughters, and they had to sneak in the side door. Wow. So we was, uh, because Vietnam was unspeakable. Yeah, 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 it's terrible, you know. Uh, who do you uh, respect in the uh, uh, JFK genre of writing uh, good information? You got me there. <laughs> well, I mean, has there been anybody else you've come across? Like, you go to the meetings there in November and... Uh, you spend... God. Yeah. Uh, but... There are some people, I shouldn't say that, there are some people that have done very interesting work. I very much respected Mark Lane. Right. Died. But I knew Mark Lane, and I, I remember when he first came out at the time of the Kennedy assassination, and he rented a church in New York City called the Jan Hus Church, and he would just talk. About the, about the inconsistencies in the stories that were being told about what happened. It couldn't happen that way. And he had talked to witnesses, and, uh, and uh, he really he sacrificed his political career for that. Now, he was very egocentric. Maybe some of these people are, but that's needed. Who's perfect? Who isn't? Right, right. So, you know, <laughs> but uh, he did, I think he did great work. And his work on um, E. Howard Hunt in that case that he did, and it came out in a book called Plausible Denial. Yeah. 
I, I don't know. I think he, he, he was exceptional. He was a credit to the research. Yeah, he was another one that kind of got slammed a lot, too, wasn't he? So. Well, yeah, he was on the list. Yeah. The list of people to be attacked. So that's the kind of person that I, I also like very much. And you would be interested if you haven't had him on, and that is Bob Tannenbaum. Bob Tannenbaum was a prosecutor in New York City in Frank Hogan's office. And he uh, then became the deputy counsel for the House Select Committee investigating the Kennedy assassination. Totally honest, interested in what was going on, looking into the Garrison case. And by the way, another person whom I admired very much, also gone. Bob is a lot, but Gaten Fonzie. Gaten Fonzie was the researcher for the House Select Committee. And he had all the prejudices against Garrison that you're supposed to have. And then he went to New Orleans, and he did a long interview with Garrison, which is available from the National Archives on tape. And he just changed his mind com completely. And uh, another person who changed her mind that I liked was Mary Farrell, who uh, was a great scholar of the Warren Report. And she, too, she hated Garrison. She made fun of Garrison. But then she realized that he, and what he went through and, and that he was right. It took a lot of people time before they could uh, uh, register what was uh, what had happened. And Most of the people I have are not honest. They're just not. Right. And do you have a thought on uh, on the Warren Commission? No, because I think it was just set up. It was my thought is that you should never have a government investigation, and so all these people on the USS Liberty that have been begging for a government investigation for fifty years are crazy, because all they have to do is look at the Warren Commission, and they could see that it was all set up with the Alan Dulles at the helm, and uh, appointed by Johnson, and uh, that they were they they never told the truth about anything. And one of the things that they did, the big thing that they didn't tell was that Lee Harvey Oswald was sent by the CIA to, uh, into the Soviet Union as a decoy, setting him up. And, uh, they, you know, they, got, they would never grant that, you know, and, and that's the case. Anybody who studies this uh, get, comes to know that. You can see it in New Orleans. So Garrison was looking, and uh, he saw Oswald with Clay Shaw, who was CIA, as I mentioned, they said he was highly paid. Highly paid. <laughs> and uh, and also with uh, David Ferry, who was a pilot for CIA, and was, uh, was the three of them together, traveling around Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. And Oswald is set up to try to get a job at the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson. And then it turned out that the doctor, the medical director of the hospital, his name was Frank Silva, whom Garrison never got to interview, believe it or not. But anyway, that was a flaw in his investigation. It wasn't perfect. And I saw, I got to meet Frank Silva, a wonderful man, Cuban, came to the U.S. in the fourth, the Castro. And uh, he said, I, I, he passed by a room where Oswald is sitting, holding forth. You know, about how he's going to uh, kill Castro and he has, he's going to use his Marine Corps uh, talents and skills and, yeah, and you know, talking loud. Well, Dr. Silva walks by the door and hears, hears this and he thinks to himself, there's no way that man is going to get a job in my hospital. <laughs> so he thwarts the CIA's plan because what Garrison thought was, oh, they were going to hire Oswald. There's no doubt about that. He applied and everything. And then they, they, they find out that he, they 
make think he was a patient, not a not, not a worker, and he'd be a patient there, and then they then he'd escape. So we have an an escapee from the insane asylum in Louisiana turn up in Dealey Plaza, and then they could say that this insane person shot President Kennedy, the lone assassin. Only it didn't work out that way. But that was part of the framing of Oswald. Nothing to do with Texas. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was very interesting. Garrison, a big, a big discovery of Garrison. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so I'm proud of Garrison. Yeah. I when think... you ask me about Garrison, yeah. and I talk about it, I realize I I feel so sorry for Garrison, and I I uh, I appreciate him, and I, I appreciate how hard he tries to this. And nobody, no, no other public official in the whole history of the United States did what he did here in trying to adjudicate the Kennedy assassination in a court of law. Court of law. That was, it's supposed to be like that. You're supposed to put people on trial. Yeah. And if somebody is a collaborator, like Clay Shaw, which he was, then um, he's supposed to be under arrest and in jail. And so that's what Garrison tried to do. Well, now Oswald didn't shoot Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> he was the decoy. He was the, he was the person that they framed right. to. Yeah. But still, Shaw participated in that. That's participating. You know, that's an overt act in, in the conspiracy law. Yeah, sure, certainly. Wow. Um, it's, this has been a real pleasure having you on. And for now, I like to talk to you. Yeah, and we're. Kind of out of time now, but uh, so your newest book out right now is called The uh, Faustian Bargains, and that's Lyndon Johnson and Mac Wallace in the Robber Baron Culture of Texas. And we have it linked on our site as well, and of course, you can get it from any major bookstore or Amazon, or you can go to Joan Mellon's website, the John, Joan Um Thanks for being on the show, Joan. Thank you, Al. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.